Well, welcome back again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you on the wee hours of June 26th from my apartment on New York's Lower East Side. And, uh, you know, I really kind of, uh, I'm reluctant to um, wade into the weeds of um, internal uh, faction fights within left media, particularly, in this case, within the left vlogosphere. But I guess I'm going to do so tonight, because I've been uh, very heartened, actually, that um, the Young Turks are rising to the occasion of calling out the pseudo-left disinformation on Syria, which is, you know, becoming increasingly hegemonic. And, uh, you know, they're getting lots of grief for this from all of the usual suspects out there, Aaron Mate, Katie Halpert, Jimmy Dore, and uh, Roger Waters. <clears throat> we'll have more to say about these charlatans later. But uh, a part of the reason that, uh, you know, I'm doing this rant about this, uh, in the larger scheme of things, it's kind of a um, teapot tempest. But a part of the reasons I feel compelled to do about it is, first, I want to congratulate the Young Turks and give them a pat on the back, you know, for, for rising to the occasion here and finally starting to, you know, take on this 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 relentless disinformation, which which has just been, you know, overwhelming everybody on the left for the past, you know, almost 10 years now since the Syrian revolution began. But also... I'm going to have to have a few pointed criticisms of the Young Turks for kind of, you know, buying into some of the uh, toxic consensus which has been established within the left on this question. And failing to grapple with some of the, you know, more difficult and disturbing political realities around the whole question of Syria. All right, now before we get to matters of substance, I just want to get some of the uh, juvenile personalistic attacks out of the way, which have been going back and forth between these two camps. And the worst offenders, as you might imagine, are the, uh, the ones who are in the corner of the Bashar Assad dictatorship. But the Young Turks have also uh, made some tactical errors, shall we say, and um, given uh, propaganda ammunition to their opponents, I'm going to start with the whole case of Aaron Mate, who has been accusing the Young Turks co-host Cenk Uger of lying about him because Cenk uh, uh, said in a kind of a uh, an offhand manner that he was quote unquote paid by the Russians. And, uh, you know, the maddening thing about it is that, uh, you know, we don't actually know that he is paid by the Russians, and we should, you know, stick to making accusations of things that we can actually prove. And Cenk Uger kind of made the wrong accusation there. We don't know that, in fact, Aaron Mate is paid by the Russians, but we certainly do know that the propaganda that he spews is relentlessly promoted by RT, which is an organ of Russian state propaganda. Because what he says is very convenient to, uh, you know, Russian foreign policy aims. And this is not by accident. <laughs> That's clear. If it was by accident, then he would, you know, 
disavow RT. It's a part of a systematic propaganda campaign, which involves both Aaron Maté and RT. I mean, this much I don't think is in dispute. And if Cenk Uger said that, I think he would have been on pretty firm ground. But, uh, you know, I mean, the, the fact that, uh, you know, that, that, that Aaron is such a, uh, you know, a popular voice in the so-called left in the United States, and the fact that in my Googling to try to get up to speed on this whole Teapot Tempest, videos and social media posts and so on in defense of Aaron Maté and dissing the Young Turks were overwhelmingly what I found. You know, all of this is just, you know, an indication of just how far out of whack everything is on the American left. And, you know, it's particularly painful because, you know, this is a moment in some ways of, uh, you know, great advances for the left in this country. And by that, when I say the left, I'm talking here more broadly about the uh, common people of progressive inclination finally beginning to flex some muscle out in the streets as well as on social media. And Trumpism was defeated in the end. At least for now, it may come back to haunt us. And the Black Lives Matter uprising, which began a little bit more than a year ago, actually has prompted this long overdue reckoning with racial justice in this country. And yet, particularly where, you know, uh, international questions are concerned, increasingly, you know, the the leftist uh, consensus position, you know, seems to be uh, just rallying uncritically behind the Kremlin and its foreign policy aims. Eh. And the fact that, you know, Aaron Maté is, uh, you know, a, uh, a veteran of democracy now, a former contributor to the nation, is evidence of just how far out of whack everything is on the American left. And we really desperately need, particularly at this moment, when there's so much at stake, to get our house in order on this question. Okay, another one who has been... Uh, publicly feuding in unseemly manner with TYT is uh, Jimmy Dore, who, to my mind, just utterly, utterly embarrassed himself. I mean, it makes me feel dirty even talking about this. It really does. But apparently, uh, he used to work with the Young Turks and their co-host, Anna Kasparian, after their falling out, made some accusations of uh, workplace sexual harassment. And Jimmy Dore in his attempt at a self-defense, goes on this, uh, you know, YouTube rant about how Anna came into the studio in a very revealing dress and bent over and you could see her ass and he made some comment about it. This is his self-defense? Engaging in blatant slut-shaming? and virtually admitting to workplace sexual harassment? Why does this guy have any credibility whatsoever on the so-called left? My God, what a sewer. Okay, another one who made an utterly sexist comment about Anna Kasparian is uh, Roger Waters, you know, the great uh, you know left-wing rock star who I ranted about, what was it, last week or the week before? who said on an interview with Katie Halper that Anna Kasparian is not such a young woman and she's well 
past her prime, quote unquote. Okay, this is, you know, a gray bearded guy whose heyday was back in the 1970s, talking about a woman who is doing much sharper work than he is today and who is half his age. The actual quote, forgive me, was um, not in the prime of youth. That was the actual quote. Forgive me, Roger. That was the actual quote. Quote, unquote, not in the prime of youth. Says a guy who was born in 1943 about a woman who was born in 1986. To hell with you, Roger. And I ask again, why does he, in this supposed age of, you know, woke, politically correct tyranny, why does Roger Waters have a single shred of credibility in this supposed age of left-wing cancel culture? Why on earth are supposed progressives looking to this condescending sexist creep as some kind of a spokesman or an icon? Hi, yay yay. And I sing once again. We don't need no pompous rock stars. Hey, Roger, leave them kids alone. <clears throat> All right, so let me uh, just uh, briefly discuss two really good episodes. Very, very worthwhile episodes that the, that, uh, the Young Turks, TYT, have done on this question amid all of this uh, <clears throat> ugly internet sniping. One aired um, June 14th, entitled Decoding Serious 2018 Chemical Attacks, in which they uh, cut through all of the disinformation which has been spread about the Assad regime's April 2018 chlorine attack at the town of Douma, which left some 50 dead and perhaps twice that many injured, quite notoriously including many children. And uh, in this uh, episode of TYT, Anna Kasparian and Jenk Uger interview uh, a reporter by the name of um, Patrick Hillsman, who has actually spent time on the ground in Syria, reporting for places such as The Intercept, and not on regime-sponsored junkets like so many of these pseudo-journalists, but actually in the war zones in the north of the country that were coming under regime bombardment. There was footage of him reporting from Aleppo at a site which had been coming under bombardment by the regime's so-called barrel bombs, and where the White Helmet's first responders, who have been baselessly maligned as terrorists, were attempting to dig victims out of the rubble. And Patrick Hillsman does a really excellent job of uh, detailing how Russia and the Assad regime attempted to cover up the Duma attack, summarizing a lot of the uh, details which are in fact documented on my website, Counter Vortex, in my... Uh, intimate blogging of the whole affair as it was going on back in the spring of 2018. Now, again, just to reiterate, Duma was in the hands of rebel forces and it had been coming under relentless regime bombardment for days when the chemical attack happened. So there shouldn't be any ambiguity at all about who carried out the chemical attack, even before the investigations 
Immediately after the chemical attack, Duma fell to regime and Russian forces. So the chemical attack served its aim. And for several days after that, regime and Russian forces kept United Nations investigators out of the site, while regime-sympathetic journalists and propagandists were allowed in, and a rather Orwellianly named outfit called the Russian Center for Reconciliation, (coughs) which is actually an arm of the Russian armed forces, which rounded up witnesses and coerced them into denying their earlier reports of the chemical weapons attack on social media, including quite notoriously an 11-year-old boy by the name of Hassan Diab, whose so-called confession, while in Russian hands, went viral in this, uh, you know, pseudo-left pro-Assad confirmation bias um, ecosystem, as they call it today. Patrick Hillsman calls this extracted confessions from captured witnesses and blatant witness tampering in which survivors were detained by Russian and regime forces to keep them from speaking with investigators and journalists. Hillsman also masterfully deconstructs the whole so-called dissident report, which was um, leaked by a um, a sub-team of the uh, OPCW, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons team, which was investigating the Duma attack, which, you know, disputed the findings of the, of the final report that uh, chlorine had been used and that the shells that released it had fallen from the air. Well, in addition to this just not making any sense logically or militarily or politically, it doesn't make sense forensically either, as Patrick Hillsman demonstrates. Watch the video. Decoding Syria's 2018 chemical attacks on the Young Turks with Patrick Hillsman, interviewed by Anna Kasparian, Cenk Uger. All right, the other one I want to point out is... Um, Syrian dictator wins sham election of June 5th, in which Anna Kasparian really breaks down all of the, uh, you know, artifices which were used in the completely controlled pseudo-election that we just witnessed for the presidency of Syria, where, uh, surprise, surprise, Bashar Assad got 95% of the vote. Who would have imagined the various artifices which were used to bar any actual opposition candidates, and the fact that there were millions of Syrians who could not vote because they were outside regime territory. And I was really glad to see Anna Kasparian call out uh, some completely bogus team of so-called election observers, which went to Syria to, you know, give these, this complete farce of an election, you know, a clean bill of health. And it turns out that this delegation was organized by something called the Syrian Solidarity Movement, which is, of course, not in solidarity with the people of Syria, but in solidarity with the dictator who is oppressing the people of Syria, which in turn is tied to uh, an outfit amusingly named the Association for Investment in Popular Action Committees, or APAC. Get it? <laughs> 
uh, trying to appropriate the name of the uh, American-Israeli Political Action Committee, one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington. But this one is uh, not shilling for the Zionist entity, but um, shilling for the genocidal dictatorship of Bashar Assad. And uh, this APAC, Association for Investment and Popular Action Committees, apparently paid Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich $20,000 to attend a a pro-Assad confab in London in 2017, and he later returned the money after the pro-Assad politics of this APAC was revealed. He was actually shamed into returning the money. Big ups to uh, Anna Kasparian for uh, pointing this out. That's some good journalism there. But uh, what she didn't mention, interestingly enough, is that uh, this same Association for Investment in Popular Action Committees, APAC, that same year, 2017, gave $2,500 to none other than Jimmy Dore for what was described as, quote, human rights media, end quote. (laughs) That's another one to file under Orwellwood shit. So please note, Anna Kasparian, your nemesis, Jimmy Dore, also got money from the Association for Investment and Popular Action Committees. This was revealed uh, by the website Bellingcat, by the way, on September 30th of 2019. Under the headline, Pro-Assad Lobby Group Rewards Bloggers on Both the Left and the Right. And that report notes that that same year, 2017, Dorr would argue that a chemical weapons attack on the opposition-held town of Khan Shikun was likely a false flag, quote-unquote. The bodies of dead children having been planted, perhaps, by extremists. And they add in parentheses, the United Nations has confirmed that the Syrian government, the only party in the conflict known to possess for sarin and an air force, was responsible. And that attack was actually carried out with sarin gas, not weaponized chlorine, as was used at the one a year later, April 2018, in Duma. All right, and here is where um, I've got to take issue a little bit with the Young Turks, because uh, in this episode, Kasparian says, quite rightly, quite correctly, quote, You can be against U.S. intervention and meddling in these situations and also acknowledge when undemocratic behavior takes place, referencing the controlled elections in Syria. And, uh, you know, they state over and over again in both of these episodes, which I'm discussing, one about the chemical attacks and the other is about the controlled election. You know, uh, Anna and Senk and their guests, you know, they emphasize over and over again that they're against U.S. intervention in Syria. <clears throat> I do not want intervention in Syria, one of them said in the, uh, in the first one about the, uh, the chemical attack posted to the internet on June 14th. Well, yeah, okay. <clears throat> I don't have a problem with that per se, but um, I believe it was Cenk who went on to uh, say by way of explanation as to why he doesn't want U.S. intervention in Syria, that, uh, you know, that it doesn't make sense to, you know, because 
you know, Assad killed a bunch of children. Let's go kill other children in Syria. And this, again, is reading the situation backwards. Because on the two occasions, I've said this over and over again, and I'm going to have to keep saying it over and over again, it appears. On the two occasions that the U.S. launched airstrikes against Assad's military bases in response to chemical attacks, after the Kanchi Kun attack in April 2017, and after the Duma attack in April 2018. There weren't any children who were bombed. There weren't any civilian casualties at all. A bunch of Assad's warplanes were bombed. So absolutely nobody is talking about killing children in Syria in response to Bashar Assad killing children in Syria. And in fact, where the United States actually did massively bombard a civilian population in Syria and did kill children was in Raqqa, the de facto capital of ISIS, well outside of regime-controlled territory between 2014 and 2017. To utter silence from these so-called anti-war hypocrites who get out there and protest when Assad's warplanes get bombed. Again, this is not an anti-war position. This is a pro-war position. And the massive, sustained U.S. intervention in Syria, massive and sustained U.S. military intervention in Syria, not the two occasions when some warplanes were bombed, But the massive and sustained U.S. military intervention in Syria has been not against Assad, but against Assad's enemies, against the ISIS stronghold of Raqqa. So the U.S. intervention has not been against Bashar Assad, overwhelmingly. The U.S. intervention, overwhelmingly, has been on the side of Bashar Assad whose troops are now actually in Raqqa. Raqqa, which was so-called, you know, liberated by U.S. bombardment in 2017, is now back in the hands of the Assad regime, whose forces were, unfortunately, invited in by the Kurdish militias who were coordinating with the U.S. airstrikes and were the, the ground force which actually took the city. So I hate to tell you this, you young Turks, but you're kind of reading the situation in Syria backward. And you're buying the propaganda and the illusion, which has been, you know, intentionally cultivated, that the Syrian revolution, you know, was was all fomented by, uh, by, by neoliberals in Washington, who were just, you know, salivating for um, Bashar Assad to be overthrown. When really the opposite is true. I mean, the U.S. intervention in Syria, the U.S. military intervention in Syria has not been as openly and blatantly on the side of the dictatorship as the Russian intervention has, obviously, in which the city of Aleppo was destroyed by Russian airplanes. But at a minimum, the U.S. has been tilting to the Assad regime in the Syrian war and viewing ISIS as the common enemy despite the fact that ISIS and the Assad regime are equally genocidal entities. 
And another of, uh, of Anna's guests on the show about the Syrian elections was Francesca Fiorentini, who I'm going to have to call out for saying something which was really egregious. Before I do, however, I want to, um, I want to give her kudos for actually uh, bringing to my attention something which escaped me as closely as I follow the situation in Syria, which is that um, Bashar Assad actually cast his vote in the city of Douma in a kind of intentional insult to the victims of the chemical attack there back in April of 2018. I had not been aware of that. Thank you, Francesca, for bringing that to my attention. A further illustration of the just utter depravity of this regime. But uh, here's why I have to call out Francesca, who in her commentary about the elections, acknowledging at length that they were a sham, she says, quote, it's certainly not democracy, and that's okay. It certainly isn't me or my government's role to intervene to create democracy, end quote. And, I mean, I just heard that, and it was like, you know, facepalm. <laughs> Hashtag facepalm. It's okay? A dictatorship holding a controlled election is okay? And then she somewhat redeems herself. She goes on to say, quote, There are many Syrians who have lost their lives trying to continue what was the Arab Spring to actually break the Assad stranglehold on the country, end quote. Yes! Indeed, there are. And I think that they would appreciate a little solidarity from progressives in the West, at least the solidarity of not saying it's okay that Syria is not a democracy. And you're conflating two questions here. Whether it is, you know, your role or our government's role to, quote-unquote, intervene to create democracy is a separate question from whether the fact that Syria is not a democracy is okay. And bloody no, it is not okay. All right, and then they go on to talk about uh, all of the horrors that have been witnessed in the United States under the past four years under Trump with an incipient concentration camp system coming together, etc. Trying to impugn the moral authority of the United States to judge what's happening in Syria. Well, my question is, do you want progressives in Syria and the Middle East to say that fascism in the U.S. is okay? How about consciously trying to build solidarity between progressive and pro-democratic forces here at home and in places like Syria and Burma and Belarus? And the situation in Burma at the moment really pains me because it's like such a replay of what was going on in Syria exactly 10 years ago. The Syrian revolution began March 20th, 2011, when unarmed civil pro-democratic protests broke out, which were serially met with massacre by the regime. Until finally, after several months of this, the Syrian civil opposition, receiving no solidarity from the outside world, felt that they had no choice other than to take up arms, and Syria began spilling into civil war. Now, here we are 10 years later. The coup d'etat in Burma was February 1st. 
Protesters demanding a restoration of democracy have been serially met with massacre and have received no solidarity from the outside world. And many now feel that they have no choice but to take up arms and Burma is spilling into civil war. It's like we've learned nothing. And in Syria, it didn't take long before the civil war began escalating to the point of genocide. With massive bombardment of civilian populations, serial use of chemical weapons, hundreds of chemical attacks by this point, and something like 100,000 disappeared into the regime's detention camps and torture gulag, where the United Nations has found, United Nations Human Rights Council has found that there is an extermination, their word, underway. I feel I should bite my tongue, but I must ask, is it going to reach that point in Burma a few months or a year down the line? I certainly pray not to a God I don't believe in. And once again, how is the left going to respond? And already, you have voices which are perceived to be on the left. Emphasis on the perceived to be, such as Ben Norton, of the Gray Zone, another Russian amplified exponent of the uh, Kremlin propaganda machine, whether or not it is actually receiving money from the Kremlin, which I'm not in a position to know. <clears throat> ben Norton is, you know, taking to social media, speculating that the death toll in Burma is inflated and baiting the civil opposition there as CIA controlled. Beyond disgraceful. But the really difficult question here, which is raised by all of this, is what in fact are the responsibilities of the outside world in the face of genocide. Now, I appreciate the Young Turks for standing up to the pseudo-left disinformation on Syria. That's a really good start. But I'm not sure that it's sufficient. And they still seem to balk at having the really difficult conversation that needs to be had. And I am not claiming to have any answers, much less easy ones. God knows I don't have any answers. But throwing up our hands and saying that it's not our problem on the face of genocide is, at the very least, an equally problematic position as supporting U.S. military intervention and supporting diplomatic efforts as an alternative, as some of the Young Turks did in their conversation. Well, it's a little bit late in the day for that, when there's half a million dead and 12 million displaced. And once again, <clears throat> While I protested the U.S. bombardment of Raqqa, when the U.S. intervention began back in 2014, when the Kurdish city of Kobane was under siege by ISIS, and the Kurdish defenders of the city were calling for international military intervention, for airstrikes on the besieging ISIS forces, I did not feel that I was in a position to tell them no. And I understand the dangers of U.S military intervention all too well. And in fact, the Battle of Kabane was the beginning of the alliance between the U.S. and the Kurds, which ended in the massive bombardment of Raqqa and the Kurds taking the city and inviting in Bashar Assad regime troops. And it was precisely because of such contingencies, such likely outcomes, that I had deep misgivings back in 2014 
about the Kurds getting in bed with U.S. imperialism and about U.S. airstrikes in defense of the defenders of Kobane. But the people of Kobane were facing a genocide at the hands of ISIS. And I did not feel that I was in any position to tell them no, to protest airstrikes, which they had been demanding. And similarly, with no illusions and with no faith in any easy solution to the Syrian conflict, back in 2016, when Aleppo was coming under massive regime and Russian bombardment, and the civilian populace of the city, who were getting bombs rained down on them, were calling for a no-fly zone, I did not feel I was in any position to tell them no. So once again, I want to congratulate the Young Turks, Anna Kasparian and Cenk Uger, for standing up to the pseudo-left disinformation about Syria and starting a conversation which is long overdue, but I'm afraid that that conversation also needs to go deeper. And it isn't enough to disavow the Assad regime, but we have to build active solidarity with the pro-democratic forces on the ground that are resisting it, which still, in spite of everything, in spite of genocide from both the regime and from ISIS, and the situation coming to be dominated by utterly ruthless armed actors, continue to exist. If you want more information about them, check out my website, countervortex.org. And go to my links page and check out the, uh, in addition to my own blogging about Syria, go to my links page and check out the uh, various websites in support of the Syrian revolution that I link to. I'll just name one. The website is called Adopt a Revolution. The actual URL is just adoptrevolution.org. Would that that website, adoptrevolution.org, was getting a fraction of the hits and attention, which is going to gray zone, and the vile dictator-shilling propaganda of Aaron Maté, Ben Norton, Katie Halper, Jimmy Dore, Roger Waters and others. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. You can check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join The Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.